Peace be upon you. So years ago, I recall seeing that the number one question people asked about Islam on Google was, what is the dress code for women? This is really telling that in the grand scheme of all the possible questions people could have about the religion, that such an inconsequential topic has such a disproportionate amount of attention from the masses. Not to mention that the answer only applies to 50% of the population, meaning that the majority of people are probably asking are men for something that doesn't really apply to them. Now, this doesn't mean that the Quran doesn't have guidelines on the dress code for believers, but compared to the central tenets of the religion, dress code is relatively low on the list of priorities. Why not more interest in the bigger questions? Bigger questions like, who is God? You know, why are we here? What is idol worship? How do we know if we're devoted to God alone? How do we worship God alone? How do we know that the Quran is from God? What happens after death? What is the hereafter? What requirements are necessary to make it to paradise? Or how do we protect ourselves from the hellfire? Or how do we lead a righteous life? Any of these questions are exponentially more important for someone's salvation that a serious person would have concerns over rather than what's the dress code for women. I mean, you think about how many multitude of sins people are committing and their concern about the dress code, the absurdity of that. They're up to their eyeballs in idol worship and their concern is, you know, what is the appropriate attire? We have to get our priorities straight. You know, out of the 6,346 verses of the Quran, the topic of dress code is only mentioned a few times compared to the thousands of verses that deal with more pressing issues that have way more bearing, again, on our salvation. You know, ironically, the Hadith literature, on the other hand, focuses an exorbitant amount of narrations on such silly details of how to put on one's shoes that it's necessary that, oh, you have to start with the right foot, then the left foot. How do we clip our nails? What foot do you use to step into the bathroom? How many rocks should someone use when going to the bathroom and make sure that it's an odd number of rocks? What side one should sleep on? Not only are the Hadith literature replete with these golden nuggets of information, as if you know God needed to send the messenger to clarify this stuff, it's rampant with grooming practices and dress code. For instance, it's prohibited for men to wear gold rings, okay? Silk is prohibited to be worn, and in some narrations it says, except if it's the, the width of two fingers, wearing only a single shoe is prohibited. Can you imagine if someone goes to hell, say, why did this person go to hell? This darn person wore a single shoe around, like some sort of schmuck. Tattoos are prohibited. Uh, facial hair removal is prohibited for the ladies. So sorry, ladies, you have to have unibrows. Adjusting one's teeth is prohibited. Now, they're saying that this has to do with the spacing of teeth, but do they apply the same thing towards braces? You know, would orthodontists be out of a job in a Muslim country? Growing one's beard and trimming the mustache is mandatory because, you know, you don't want to have those long mustache hairs. And men are allowed to dye their uh, beard hair, and it's actually recommended. But women, on the other hand, you know, God forbid you use any hair extensions or false hair because that is prohibited. And the reason is it's because it's falsehood. And these aren't just, you know, some weak hadith. These are Sahih hadith. You can go to Sahih Bukhari Muslim and see these hadith. Yet in the tens of thousands of hadith, 
from the six authentic compilers, this is the one that every Sunni Muslim should accept, you will not find a single mention in any Sahih Hadith mandating that women must cover their hair or any mention of women having to cover their hair at all. If this was such a central part of the religion, is it not strange that there's virtually no mention of this in their own Hadith literature that talks about such nuances about killing lizards and how to put on shoes and how to put on pants, but nothing regarding the covering of women's hair. And it's not to say that the, the Hadith literature doesn't mention a head cover, it does, but never signifies that this was a commandment from God or his messenger for women to have to cover their hair. Interestingly, in a Hadith found in the Musanaf of Ibn Abi Shayba, it reads that Umar, this is the second Khalifa, saw a slave woman who veiled her hair. He struck her and told her, do not imitate free women. Now, I don't believe this account, but it's interesting that the one hadith regarding this subject matter is reprimanding someone for wearing a headscarf, not because of religious reasons, but because of cultural reasons. Because the Quran acknowledges that there's believers among the free and the slave. So if Umar is reprimanding someone and striking them because she was a slave wearing a head cover as if she was a free person, this shows that this is a cultural decree and not a religious decree. In Surah 6 verse 150 it says, Say, bring your witnesses who would testify that God has prohibited this or that. If they testify, do not testify with them, nor shall you follow the opinions of those who reject our revelations and those who disbelieve in the hereafter and those who stray away from their Lord. All these false prohibitions that the Hadith literature propagate, interestingly enough, it not once even mentions that the women must cover their hair, that this is a decree from God. You know, a recent book that shows how the Islamic State utilized dress code laws in the past is called The Muslim Difference. And this book recently came out and it cites all these interesting examples. So for instance, it cites the Pact of Umar as the earliest attempt by the Muslim State to mandate strict dress code for what was lawful and prohibited. The Pact states that no one should be permitted to imitate and resemble Muslims in their dress, riding animals, the general appearance, and that the obligations for non-Muslims were to adopt distinct headgear, footgear, belts, and prohibited them from using saddles because that was only for the Muslims. So again, keep in mind, this is supposedly their, from their own history is saying that it happened after the Prophet's death, that they started coming up with these dress codes. We also see that during the Ottoman periods, imperial decrees preventing non-Muslims from resembling Muslims were complemented by the composition of religious treaties forbidding Muslims from resembling non-Muslims. So now in essence they're saying, look Muslims, you have to dress this way, non-Muslims, you have to dress this way. And it gets ridiculous. It says, this extended to their other fashion legal rulings. So we see that the Abbasid Khalifa Mutawakil decreeing that Jews and Christians must wear honey-colored turbans in contrast to the blue or black turbans that were to only be worn by the Muslims. So now we're having turban colors. These are like gang colors to represent who the Muslims are, who the Jews are, who the Christians are. And not to be outdone, 
the Shia Khalifa from the Fatimid Khalif Hakim came up with a decree to undermine Mutawakil's Abbasid uh, decree. And he said that the Jews and the Christians must wear black turbans. Now, this essentially transformed the color black from a prestigious symbol under the Abbasid Caliphs into a humiliating symbol of non-Muslim subjugation. So now all these fashionistas wearing their black turbans, they were ridiculed because now that was the turban color for the, the second class Jews and Christians. And this trend continues. The Mamluk sultans issued a color-coded decree that outfitted the Jews with yellow turbans, the Christians with blue turbans, the Samaritans with red turbans. Similarly, the Ottoman sultans mandated black hats for the Jews, red hats for the Christians, while the Muslims were permitted to wear turbans. So now they're saying no turbans for anyone unless you're a Muslim. These kinds of things makes a mockery of the religion. And the fact that this cultural aspect gets infused in the religion makes it that much more abhorrent. But let's just humor these individuals and their decrees. And let's assume that these were actually from God, that they had justification for this color coding system. So even if we granted them that, that they had some foundation for this understanding, the reality is it would still 100% contradict the verses of God in the Quran. That is because the Quran prohibits aggression, oppression, and compulsion. And forcing people into a certain style of dress is clearly an act of aggression, its oppression, and its compulsion. In Surah 2, verse 256, it reads, There shall be no compulsion in religion. The right way is now distinct from the wrong way. Anyone who denounces the devil and believes in God has grasped the strongest bond, one that never breaks. God is here omniscient. A follower of the Quran alone is never justified in using aggression in response to someone else's dress or expression. Ironically, the only time that aggression is permitted in the Quran is against an aggressor or to fight oppression. So in the eyes of the verses of the Quran, the people who fight back against such tyranny are the ones who are in the right, even if their dress code was hypothetically wrong. In Surah 2, verse 190 through 193, it reads, You may fight in the cause of God against those who attack you, but do not aggress. God does not love the aggressors. It says, You may kill those who wage war against you, and you may evict them once they evicted you. Oppression is worse than murder. Do not fight them at the sacred mosque unless they attack you therein. If they attack you, you may kill them. This is the just retribution for those disbelievers. If they refrain, then God is forgiver most merciful. You may also fight them to eliminate oppression and to worship God freely. If they refrain, you shall not aggress. Aggression is permitted only against the aggressors. So in no uncertain terms, the verses are telling us that as a follower of the Quran, that we are never allowed to be the aggressor that oppression is worse than murder. And the only time we are allowed to fight is against the aggressors who've already instigated the situation or to fight oppression. So if someone is forcing a mandate on them as far as how they're allowed to dress, what attire they're allowed to wear, those people are being persecuted. Those people are being oppressed and they have every right to stand up for their rights against such tyranny.
Mandating a strict dress code on the masses is a hallmark of a tyranny. If people are not free to make such basic decisions regarding what hat they wear, what clothes they put on, how less likely are they to object to other matters of control that the state mandates? By controlling the minutia of a population's daily affairs, it keeps the people compliant and imprisoned. It gives them the feeling that there's no way for them to get out of this level of control. Now, for the average person, it might be hard to imagine what a society like that would be like. You know, most people, praise God, live in a society where not, they're not being oppressed on what they're allowed to wear. That for the most part, they're allowed to dress however they want. But consider this, during the whole height of the COVID hysteria that took place and the compulsion and aggressive behavior towards people who did not want to wear a mask, how many people during that time got persecuted in grocery stores, airplanes, restaurants because they didn't want to wear a mask or they didn't have a, a COVID passport of some sort? And this was a little taste for the population at mass to see what it's like when you're living under a tyranny. But this is nothing compared to these Islamic, quote-unquote, Islamic countries who are mandating laws, dictating what an individual is allowed and not allowed to wear. And this is the worst form of tyranny because the ones who are mandating this believe that they are authorized by God for such actions. In Surah 7, verse 32, it reads, Say, who prohibited the nice things God has created for his creatures and the good provisions? Say, such provisions are to be enjoyed in this life by those who believe. Moreover, the good provisions will be exclusively theirs on the day of resurrection. We thus explain the revelations for people who know. God created these provisions for us to enjoy. The individuals who are prohibiting these things and attributing it to God are committing one of the most horrendous crimes because they're attributing lies to God. They're claiming that they got divine revelation when they did not get any such revelation. In Surah 11 verse 18, it says, Who are more evil than those who fabricate lies about God? They will be presented before their Lord. And the witnesses will say, These are the ones who lied about their Lord. God's condemnation has befallen the transgressors. In Surah 6, verse 93, it says, Who is more evil than one who fabricates lies and attributes them to God or says, I have received divine inspiration when no inspiration was given to him or says, I can write the same as God's revelations? If only you could see the transgressors at the time of death, the angels will extend their hands to them saying, Let go of your souls. Today you have incurred a shameful retribution for saying about God other than the truth and for being too arrogant to accept his revelations. These people who are claiming that they have divine decree to make these religious laws regarding the dress code of people are digging themselves a pit in hell. And they're going to be held accountable for that unless they change their ways. You know, the Quran brings out our true convictions. And it either is going to increase the faith of the faithful or increase the disbelief of the wicked. Because both parties claim to be upholding the book of God. In Surah 17, verse 82, it says, We send down in the Quran healing and mercy for the believers. At the same time, it only increases the wickedness of the transgressors. These individuals who use this book to try to claim it gives them justification for their tyrannical laws are only driving themselves further into wickedness and disbelief.
The fact is, nowhere in the Quran does it command that women must cover their hair. Yet despite this, many people try to force this on the masses. To put this idea to rest, let's look at the verses that people utilize to try to justify the mandate that women must cover their hair. The word hijab is commonly used to mean a head covering in modern Arabic. But when we look at this word in the Quran or any derivatives from its root, it is not once used as an article of clothing. Every occurrence of this word consistently throughout the entire Quran is used as a form of a barrier. But this isn't a physical barrier like that of a wall or a dam, but a barrier like that of a mental barrier or a barrier due to space, but not like a physical barrier like, again, a wall or a dam. There's different words in Arabic for that. So, for instance, if you read Surah 7 verse 46, it's talking about the people in purgatory. And it says a barrier, hijabun, separates them while the purgatory is occupied by people who recognize each side by their looks. So this barrier, again, there's some partition, some division between the people in purgatory and then the people in hell and the people in paradise. In Surah 17 verse 45 says, When you read the Quran, we place between you and those who do not believe in the hereafter an invisible barrier. Again, this is some sort of mental barrier that blocks them from understanding the Quran. In Surah 19 verse 16 through 17, it says, Mentioned in the scripture, Mary... She isolated herself from her family into an eastern location, while a barrier, hijaban, separated her from them. We sent to her our spirit. He went to her in the form of a human being. So again, there is a physical proximity between her and then her family, that there is some sort of barrier that God placed there. In Surah 41, verse 5, they said, Our minds are made up, our ears are death to your message, and a barrier, hijabun, separates us from you. Again, these aren't, again, physical barriers. There's something in the sense they're either mental or due to space. So now we look at the one verse where people often cite to justify hijab in the context of women's dress is in Surah 33, verse 53. And it's in regards to the prophet's wives. It says, O you who believe, do not enter the prophet's homes unless you are given permission to eat, nor shall you force such an invitation in any manner. If you are invited, you may enter. When you finish eating, you shall leave. Do not engage him in lengthy conversations. Hadith. This used to hurt the prophet, and he was too shy to tell you. But God does not shy away from the truth. And it's here. It says, If you have to ask his wives for something, Ask them from behind a barrier, hijabin. This is pure for your hearts and their hearts. You are not to hurt the messenger of God. You shall not marry his wives after him, for this would be a gross offense in the sight of God. Now this can be understood that this is a physical barrier, and that's fine. Or, in essence, a spatial barrier in the sense of keeping one's distance from the prophet's wives. But in either interpretation, this does not imply Two things. One is that this is a head covering of any sort. Two, that this applies to anyone beyond the prophet's wives. Because the prophet's wives bore more responsibility than the average women. For instance, in the verse we just read, that the people were prohibited from marrying the prophet's wives after he passed. You know, this condition is only for the wives of the prophet and not for the general believer. In Surah 33, verse 30 through 32, we read, O wives of the Prophet, 
If any of you commits a gross sin, the retribution will be doubled for her. This is easy for God to do. Any one of you who obeys God and his messenger and leads a righteous life, we will grant her double the recompense, and we have prepared for her a generous provision. O wives of the prophet, you are not the same as other women. If you observe righteousness, you have a greater responsibility. Therefore, you shall not speak too softly, lest those with disease in their hearts may get the wrong ideas. You shall speak only righteousness. So again, we see that this verse, not only is it talking about a hijab in the sense of some sort of barrier, it's not a head covering. Secondly, again, it only applies to the prophet's wives. This is not for the general population. So that eliminates this verse as a possible conduit to try to justify the use of a head covering for women. The other verse that often gets cited for justification for some sort of head covering is in Surah 24, verse 31. And when I read this verse, I'm intentionally not going to translate one of the words because I want to extract what this word means because it's this word that often gets abused into trying to extract an interpretation that conflicts with the Quran. And it reads, And tell the believing women to subdue their eyes and maintain their chastity. They shall not reveal their zainatahun except that which is necessary. They shall cover their chest and shall not relax this code in the presence of other than their husbands, their fathers, the fathers of their husbands, their sons, the sons of their husbands, their brothers, the sons of their brothers, the sons of their sisters, other women, the male servants, or employees whose sexual drive has been nullified, or the children who have not reached puberty. They shall not strike their feet when they walk, in order to reveal their zainatihin, all of you shall repent to God, O you believers, that you may succeed. So there are two points of contention from this verse that people try to justify the interpreting of this verse to imply that it means women should cover their hair. Firstly, again, nowhere in the verse does it explicitly say women must cover their hair. That said, let's look at these two points that people try to uh, make from this verse. The first one is the word where it says that the women are to cover their chest. And the Arabic that's used for this cover is khumur. Khumur comes from the word khamar, and it just simply means a cover. But people understand this, that it's saying to cover your chest with your head cover. So you'll see in some translation that this word is translated as head cover, or in parentheses they'll say head cover. Except this word, again, it simply means to cover. This comes from the same root as the word khamar, which means wine or intoxicants, which these are things that cover the mind. But if we look at the root, again, we see that it's just a general term for something that covers. So whatever clothing they're covering, God is saying to cover their chest. But even if we say that this word specifically means a head cover, what's interesting is the verse is saying to use this head cover, not to cover your head, but to cover your chest. So God is saying that this khumar, that the purpose of it is to cover the chest. And again, nowhere in the verse does it say that the women must cover their hair. The second argument that is often brought up is the interpretation of this word zina. So this word is used three times in the verse and most simply means an adornment. People typically think of adornments as accessories. 
So for instance, this is how we find it used in the following verse. So in Surah 20, verse 87, it's talking about the, uh, the, the calf that the children of Israel made. They said, we did not break our agreement with you on purpose, but we were loaded down with jewelry. And we see this is the same root, zinati. Uh, and we decided to throw our loads in. This is what the Sumerian suggested. So we will see in the Quran that this word is used in that context. The problem with this understanding is that the verse doesn't use zina as an exterior item, like an article of clothing or jewelry. This is apparent because if that was the case, it would have instructed the women to remove and not wear their zina adornments. But instead, it says to conceal and not flaunt their zina. Secondly, the portion that says that the women should not strike their feet when they walk to draw attention to what they conceal of their zina. And again, this indicates that it's not some accessory. It's not something that they add on. So people take that to mean that this means that women must cover anything that they uh, deem beautiful. So you'll see that sometimes they limit that to the, uh, the, the, uh, the hair, but you'll see people in full burqas. But it gets more interesting. In another verse, in Surah 7, verse 31, that also has to do with dress code, we see that it reads, O children of Adam, you shall take your zinatakum when you go to the masjid and eat and drink moderately. Surely he does not love the gluttons. So in this verse, it's saying that the believers are to take their zina, while in the other verse, it's saying to conceal their zina. So what's going on here? It seems like a contradiction. So how do we reconcile this? The root of the word zina, in addition to adornments like accessories, also has another meaning, which is to make something alluring. And we see this used in this manner in the following verses. So for instance, in Surah 49, verse 7, it says, And know that God's messenger has come in your midst. Had he listened to you in many things, you would have made things difficult for yourselves. But God made you love faith and adorned it in your hearts. And you see, وَزَيْنَهُ And he made you abhor disbelief, wickedness, and disobedience. These are the guided ones. So it's showing that this uh, word, the root of this word, means also to make something alluring, to make something desirable, to the, the fact that these people loved faith and God adorned it in their hearts. And we see this used in another verse. This one has to do with Karun, the slave driver, who the people gawked over because of his immense wealth. So it reads in Surah 28, verse 71, it says, One day, he, Garun, came out to his people in his zinatahi. So he came out to his people in his adornments. Okay? And it continues. It says, those who preferred this worldly life said, Oh, we wish that we possess what Karun has attained. Indeed, he is very fortunate. So what does this word mean in this context? You know, how do we apply this to 2431 and Surah 7, verse 31, so we get a consistent understanding? And the answer is relatively simple. When a woman is out in public, she shouldn't walk or dress in such a way that draws unnecessary attention from men to make her excessively alluring for them. But when we are going to the masjid, we want to make the act of doing this righteous deed alluring to others. This is why 
it is understood that when we go to the masjid, we look good. We do this by being clean, by dressing nicely, and not being gluttons. Because notice that the verse in 731 says not only that when you go to the masjid to bring your zainatakum, but it also says to eat and drink in moderation and not be extravagant or gluttonous. And you think, this? how does this look for the individuals who come to masjid? They see these people, they, they look good, they dress good, and this makes going to the masjid more alluring. Imagine you go there and a, people are dressed like a bunch of slobs. They don't look, in essence, their best. They're out of shape. They become gluttonous. How would that portray the masjid? Now contrast that when you're out in public. You know, the concept is when you're out in public, you don't want to be walking, strutting your feet, drawing attention unnecessarily to make your body, this, this gift that God has given you, alluring to other people. And the reason is simple. God created the woman beautiful. There is something about a woman's allure that both men and women are dazzled by. And God is saying that in essence, there is a time and place to make yourself alluring. That when you're out promoting God's work, you want to be presented in the best possible light. But when you're out just doing your day-to-day -day task, you don't want to draw unnecessary attention towards these blessings that God has given you. God has blessed the women with a figure. And this causes the male gaze. And for the sake of maintaining modesty, to not invite unnecessary attention, God is giving simple guidelines that women must cover their chest. And they shouldn't make themselves unnecessary alluring for the general population. And we see this repeated in the following verse in Surah 24, verse 60. It says, the elderly women who do not expect to get married commit nothing wrong by relaxing their dress code, provided that they do not reveal too much of their zinatim. And again, this is understanding that this has to do with the physical form of the woman. And it continues, it says, to maintain modesty is better for them. God is here, knower. So this is the requirement for the dress code for the righteous women that they maintain modesty. They don't walk in such a manner to shake and reveal these blessings that God has given them. And it tells us in Surah 33, verse 59, it says, O prophet, tell your wives, your daughters, and the wives of the believers that they shall lengthen their garments. Thus they will be recognized as righteous women and avoid being insulted. God is forgiver, most merciful. So this is saying that if someone wants to go that extra mile to be recognized as a righteous woman, that God is recommending to lengthen the garment. And this is a personal choice that each woman has to make for herself. It is no position of anyone in society dictating to her how she should dress. The society as a whole should maintain righteousness. But this is not something that a government can mandate down to its people. You cannot legislate morality. All you can do is encourage, remind, and set a good example. These tyrants who want to mandate, you know, uh, dress code by religious decree are committing the most horrendous crime because they're attributing lies to God and they're robbing the very freedom that God has given each of his servants. I find it fascinating that out of, again, the multitude of topics 
that people should be concerned about regarding salvation, how to make it to the hereafter, how to have a relationship with God, that they get so fixated on this dress code. And then ironically, these verses are written in such a way where it's openly ambiguous. And I, my takeaway from that is that God knows that those who have disease in their hearts, they're going to be fixated on these details that, again, in the grand scheme of things, are so inconsequential. But all this does is it exposes the tyrannical nature of certain people that when they get into the religion, rather than drawing closer to God, they become more aligned with Satan. So God willing, let's not make these mistakes. Let's give people the freedom they deserve. Let's try to lead a good example and abide by the verses of God and the Quran. And for God's sake, let's take this Hadith literature and put it exactly where it belongs, inside the waste bin. God willing, we're going to end there. If you guys want to get in touch, please join us on our Discord server. Praise God, we're getting more and more people every single day. Believers from all over the world who are gravitating towards God's message. People of all faiths and all backgrounds who just want to worship God alone. If you want to follow along the verses of the Quran, please download the Quran study app on the iOS app store. If you want more information, check out the Quran talk blog or go to QuranicLabs.com. And until next time, peace and God bless you.